Welcome to High Performance Mindset with Dr. Sindra Kampoff. Do you want to reach your full potential, live a life of passion, go after your dreams? Each week, we bring you strategies and interviews to help you ignite your mindset. Let's bring on Sindra. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Sindra Kampoff, and I'm grateful that you're here today. Ready to listen to an interview with Duncan Simpson. You know, each week on the podcast, we work to provide you two things. First, a short strategy session, about 10 minutes long or so, that provides one specific strategy or tool that you can implement today to improve your performance. And those strategy sessions are usually radio interviews that I do on Monday mornings with TJ and Lisa. Again, super short, something that you can implement today. And then we also work to provide you an interview. And the interview is really designed for us to learn from the world's best athletes, coaches, leaders, and consultants. And the interview is all focused on the topic of mindset to help us reach our potential or be high performers in our field or sport. And this week, Duncan Sinson, he brought it. He brought the energy, he brought the knowledge, and he brought the really specific tangible tools that we can use. So Duncan Simpson is Assistant Head of Mental Conditioning at IMG Academy, and he is passionate about working with others to maximize their potential, help them accomplish things that they haven't. And this interview, he talks about how he sees focus, not confidence, as the most important mental skill. And I asked him a lot of questions about that. It was a really good discussion. And he talked about how he t- we tend to see confidence as an emotional state, but really it's a belief state. He cares more about what we, what we focus on and less about how we feel. So he describes what focus really is, how we can get back our focus when we're distracted. And he provides lots of other gems in this interview. He talks about his time machine exercise, super good, and then how to layer imagery. And then he talks about his epic failure that helped him get to where he is today. My favorite part of this interview is is his quote, which is this. Motivation is a lie. Motivation comes and goes. It's discipline. Instead, that is key. If you liked this interview, if you found it helpful, could you please go over to iTunes? It would help us tremendously to get a rating there or a comment. That rating just helps us reach more and more people. So if you listen to this podcast regularly or you're just tuning in today and liked the interview, please, man, that would mean so much to us. So head over to iTunes. And then uh, we'd love to hear what you thought about this interview. Uh, Duncan and I are both on Twitter, pretty active Twitter users. So you can head over to there. Tell us what you thought about the interview. What was important to you? What's one thing that stood out to you? Um, Duncan's Twitter handle is Sports Psych Dunk, so D-U-N-C, and mine is at mentally underscore strong. So again, thanks so much for joining us. And without further ado, let's bring on Duncan. I'm here with Dr. Duncan Simpson from IMG Academy. And Duncan, I'm just so excited that you're here, ready to join us for the High Performance Mindset. Thanks ever so much, Sandra. It's uh, it, it really is an honor to be on the podcast. I've listened to, I think, every single one of the interviews so far. So I'm, I'm just really honored to be a guest. And I'm honored and excited to have you. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because every time I, I hear you speak at our sports psychology conference, which is ASP, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, I'm always blown away by your presentation. And I always learn something. So I know that I am going to learn a lot today. I have my notebook and my pen ready for you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. So, Duncan, just to, to get us started, tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. You're now the Assistant Head of Mental Conditioning at IMG. So just kind of take us through a little bit of journey of, uh, of how you got there. I would say a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, which is a good combination to have. I, uh, I'm originally from the UK, so I did my undergrad and master's in the UK. And just by coincidence, I was looking to come over to do my PhD in the US and um, dropped an email to Angus Mokford uh, probably over 10 years ago now. And I didn't know Angus. And he kind of said something about a, uh, a GRE test, which I'd never heard about. And so I, I looked up what a GRE was and found out I could take one a, a week later and literally took the GRE and, and got into grad school. So 
when I say luck, it really was luck that I sent an email and Angus decided he replied. And um, we've, we've since become friends and, and colleagues, which, you know, it's a, it's a small field, but really great coincidence. So I ended up um, in at the University of Tennessee and had a fantastic experience there and then went into academia uh, one year at Ithaca and six and a half years at Barry University in Miami and then have recently made the transition to IMG Academy um, in 2017. So it's been a little bit of a roller coaster, but a lot of luck and hard work and yeah. That's where I am right now. Well, that's pretty wild because you're sitting there at an IMG and that's where Angus used to, to work. <laughs> so pretty wild, isn't it? How it goes full circle. So Duncan, tell us a little bit about what you're most passionate about. So my, my role is the assistant head of mental conditioning and the majority of the athletes here are youth sport athletes. So we're dealing with usually 11 to 18-year-olds. We have some post-grad high school athletes and some professional athletes that train here. But it's mainly um, very talented, you know, useful teenagers. And really what, what we, our goal is to really make a difference in young people's lives, both personally and athletically. Um, so in any way that we can do that is to facilitate their development and to make a difference. That sounds like a, a pretty deep purpose, you know, <laughs> helping them personally d- be at their best. So I'm thinking about how and I visited IMG at least once. I'm going to be back there in May. So I look forward to seeing you in person, Duncan. But, you know, I'm just thinking about how you get to see some of the, the world's best in terms of high school athletes, even pro athletes. And I know you, you know, before going into IMG, you had your own private practice. So tell us what you think kind of separates those who are really successful from those that are less successful. It's a great question. I, I used to think confidence was king. I think you probably heard that saying before. But now, the more I've worked with athletes, I really think focusing on the right thing at the right time is what separates kind of the best from the rest. Um, the best that I've worked to really know how to focus, what to focus on, or when to focus on it. Uh, and that the internal focus and the external focus, being able to switch and be aware of the focus and be very present, uh, present moment focused, that's where I think really separates the best athlete, their ability to do that. Okay, so give us a little insight into, gosh, that, that's, that's a pretty big topic, but they know what to focus on externally and internally, and, and they stay in the present moment where some of the key things I heard you say. Tell us how you might start to help a, an athlete or performer who might be struggling with that. Well, I think there's this misnomer that with athletes that they, they talk about losing focus a lot. And it's really not that they're losing focus. They're just switching focus or they're getting distracted. So their focus is shifting onto something else. So a key, a key point is to help athletes identify what are their key distractions. What are they getting distracted by? And when are they getting distracted? And then, and then it's the challenge of how do we circle them back into being uh, focused onto the present. So I think athletes, it's, it's almost a relief when I tell them that they can't lose focus, they just get distracted. And then it's just, well, okay, well, what do I get distracted by? And usually they can identify those relatively quickly. The challenge is then, hey, how do we circle back and how do we actually get them focused on the present? Um, and obviously you've, heard, you've had people on the podcast kind of talk about mindfulness and, and being very present focused that's certainly something we try and do and we do um, implement some um, classes in mindfulness especially you know for me I'm working mainly tennis golf and uh, with a soccer team so for me a lot of it it comes back to very simple things Um, what what is our target right now and and sometimes although it sounds very simple it's sometimes the easiest things are, are the best things so I'm asking, you know, literally on, on each golf shot, what are you trying to do? What is your precise target? What is your plan right now? And every single time that we do that, whether it's a serve in tennis, whether it's a return, what is our target? So just simply simplifying down what to focus on and then when to focus on it, that really helps athletes. So that, that clears away kind of some of the external distractions and the externally focusing. and then. For the internal focus, when I talk about kind of internal distractions, that's usually the kind of the the thought processes, the cognitions, thinking about, you know, past and future, 
but it's also our emotions and how our emotions drag us away from the present. So a lot of times it's, it's pretty easy to see where our focus is. So if an athlete's emotionally they got anger or they're frustrated, they're thinking about the past, something's just happened or they're disappointed. And if they're thinking about the future, they, you know, it's usually shown up in nerves and anxiety and fear. So helping athletes use emotions to detect where, you know, where are they thinking and where their focus is directed? Because really when we're very much dialed into the, the present, there's not a lot of emotion there. And um, so I, I'm working a lot with athletes in, in terms of how do we get them into that space where we're not, you know, when we're not internally or externally distracted and that we can really focus on the key performance indicators that we need to, we need to pay attention to. And Duncan, when you're just talking about external or internal distractions, give us some examples of external distractions. I'm thinking, you know, might be like the fans, the other team, coaches, at least that's what I see athletes struggle with, you know, things that they can't control. But what do you see? For example, like a sport like golf, um, they'll get very distracted by hazards. So, Mm. you know, obviously a golf course is laid out for you know, to make it challenging. So they'll get very distracted by water or bunkers or out of play. So they get very distracted by those external stimuli or the wind or the course conditions. Similarly, in, in tennis, I had a, I had a player, a good player tell me yesterday they were distracted by the planes flying by. They're distracted by what's going on on the court next to them, by people who are around on the edge of the courts. And these are, you know, top-level players. So they can get easily distracted by anything. Um, so... I tell them, I don't mind if you get distracted. It's more ability to detect that distraction and then refocus. Because the reality is, I don't know of any athlete that can be completely dialed in and focused for a three-hour tennis match. You, 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 you're going to get distracted. But how do we dial it back in into what's important at the right time? So I think it's more about them recognizing when they're distracted, internally or externally, and then bring it back to the present. Oh, I like that, Duncan. So detect the distraction or detect when they're distracted and they, and then get refocused. So as people are listening, I, I'm thinking that they might be saying, well, how do I do that? <laughs> Can you give us a strategy or a tip or, you know, anything to kind of extend that thought? Like notice when you're distracted and then get refocused. So the ability to get refocused, again, it comes to each individual sport. What are they they know the key things that they should be uh, focusing on. Or if the consultant doesn't, they need to ask the coach. So for a simple thing like a, a serve in tennis, they're going to, you know, the direction, the, the actual physical point on the court that they're trying to hit the, the serve or the return. Uh, similarly to golf, and it may be something in the air that they're trying to hit the ball through, or it may be a, a landing spot. So an actual physical target that's pretty simple but you know how do we get there um for example with golf we may talk about the one minute focus so Mm. when they we use it as part of their uh, pre-performance routine so when they get to their ball that's when we use the kind of the analogy of a light switch that they have that one minute that they really have to dial in so as soon as they get to the ball it's almost like a physical trigger that when they get to the ball that's the time when they really have to dial in for one minute um, and then if they find themselves getting distracted, you know, we use different things in the routine where they may step away from the ball and go through that routine again. So the ability to, and, and similarly in tennis, it may be as soon as I step up to the line, or as soon as I set my feet for the return, I'm now ready to go. Or, you know, once I finish with my towel, so depending on the athlete, it'll be a little bit, we can use a physical trigger to induce that kind of the ability to refocus some like the light bulb analogy, some like the light switch. It can be something like that. But having them recognize that our focus doesn't have to be 100% all the time. It's just important to switch it at the key moments and to be paying attention when we need to pay attention. I like the idea of just like the one-minute focus, you know, that you don't have to be 100% focused all the time, but being focused and present when, when is absolutely necessary. Absolutely. So Duncan, you had mentioned that there at IMG, you guys uh, do some mindfulness training. Tell us uh, about, you know, how you, how you define mindfulness and just a little bit about how you guys train that. So really mindfulness, obviously, probably people listening are familiar, but the ability to stay focused 
have acceptance and non-judgment of thinking. We teach a, a, an actual a seven-week curriculum where we go through the process of teaching athletes um, the ability, a few different skills, which are very, uh, you know, breathing, breathing techniques, and there's a whole variety of different breathing techniques, teaching them on the ability of um, acceptance of thoughts and emotions and, and the non-judgmental thinking. And we'll do activities such as, you know, mindful walking and mindful eating, and obviously breathing is, is a huge part and uh, mindful meditation. So that's really the kind of the essential piece. Um, and, and usually teams will cycle through medit- uh, mindfulness usually once, uh, once in a calendar year, I'd say, on estimate. So each athlete usually gets a little bit of mindfulness. But, you know, we're, I'm really, for me personally as a consultant, I'm trying to implement a little bit of this uh, on a daily basis with athletes. You know, I may not call it mindfulness, but I'm really talking about trying to be present. I'm really working on... Mm-hmm not being too judgmental on the outcome of particular shots or particular, you know, circumstances within performance and really acceptance of whatever the result is. So those kind of tenets of mindfulness, you know, really are a common thread throughout the work that I do with athletes. Although I may not always call it mindfulness because they may not know what I'm talking about. Right, right. And sometimes um, what I find is when I talk about mindfulness to even elite athletes, sometimes they, they think I'm talking a little voodoo, but right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you, you can teach them the principles without them knowing um, or maybe even calling it mindfulness. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'd love to hear your, you said that you, know, you used to think confidence was most important, but now you kind of see focus is most important. Tell us about your journey in, in changing your thoughts on that. I think it's really interesting because confidence, I, I think when we talk to athletes about confidence, they're usually talking, I think athletes probably don't understand it incredibly well. Um, and then my challenge is how do we recreate or how do we create confidence? If I'm, if I'm doing mental conditioning or mental training, I should be able to teach that on a pretty consistent level. And that's not e- always easy because when I ask an athlete, you know, describe your confidence, they really struggle to do it most of the time. Um, they, can, they can sometimes give me behaviors or body language or perhaps what it looks like. But usually what they tell me is, it's how I feel. So when mm. an athlete says, you know, mm. are you confident? You know, I don't feel confident. So when, when we have athletes that are talking about feelings and feelings of confidence, then they're really connecting confidence to an emotional state. Mm-hmm. because that's what feelings are. So the, the, the big challenge with that is if we're judging confidence like an emotion, then confidence is going to come and go like an emotion. And that's what we tend to see with athletes is, you know, we, we, play, we play half an hour, we play really well, so our confidence is up. We miss a couple of shots, our confidence is bad. You know, we have a couple of good games, a couple of bad games, and our confidence goes up and down like our emotions. So we so athletes are treating their confidence like a feeling and, and they step on court and they have to feel good. If I feel good, I've got a chance to play well. And I want, you know, that, that, that is not consistent. That's not sustainable. And that's really not how I want my athletes to kind of conceptualize and work with confidence. So with, with confidence, I'm moving them away from a feeling state and I'm moving them more towards obviously what confidence really is, is a belief system. So, I like to use the analogy with them of a, of a brick wall in terms of their confidence. And I do this as, a, as an activity with them that I'll print off a picture of a brick wall. And on every little brick, they have to write why they should be confident. You know, it, obviously previous, uh, previous wins, specific matches, you know, the amount of practice they put in, the amount of physical conditioning, you know, the amount of mental conditioning, the amount of mindfulness training, they've done all these different things, why they should be confident. So we create a brick wall. And again, the analogy of the brick wall is obviously something that's strong. It's built over time. It's not just one thing. It's built over a lot of different things. And that, that serves as our belief system. And then on the day-to-day, the moment-to-moment, it's really what we say to ourselves that makes that big impact upon our, our moment-to-moment confidence. But I use it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I say, I don't care how you feel because they get so tied up in confidence and I need to feel good to play well. Well, you don't. You can feel great and you can play terrible or you can feel terrible and you can play great. So 
you know, I'm, I'm trying to move athletes away from that notion of confidence as a feeling state and more into a stronger belief system. So that's why I've got a little bit away from confidence. Now, I'm not saying confidence isn't important. I think it's really important. But I think athletes get too hung up on, if I don't feel confident, I can't play well. And, and that I don't believe in. So that's why I kind of say, you know, I, I shifted away from confidence a little bit. But we still talk about it because they still think it's really important. Um, so we, we kind of have really good conversations and challenge them on their belief system and then helping them develop a strong belief system about why they should be confident. And it's not because I had one good practice or I played well in my last match or last tournament. It's because I've played well over, you know, two years and I've done all this stuff, which means that I can play this sport. That's why I should be confident, not moment to moment changes in performance. That's good. I'm glad I asked you that question. We had a great, you know, I just really liked kind of what you said in terms of it doesn't matter how you feel and even the best athletes and performers, they can play well or perform well regardless of how they're feeling. Absolutely. So Duncan, is there a topic besides focus or confidence that you tend to always cover with your clients or those there at IMG? It really is sport dependent. Um, and a lot of it ties into some of the things we've already talked about. Obviously, when I'm working with a team, we, we, we do team sessions. So it's a little, little different, um, you know, group dynamics, team dynamic stuff. When I'm working individual athletes, a lot of it ties back into, you know, how to be present. Um, but I'm, we're dealing with youth sport athletes. So I think the challenge that we have is, you know, adjusting how we deliver and how we kind of get across some of the information. So I was working the other day and, and thinking about emotional control and working with athletes, so a little bit of emotional regulation. But I was really saying, you know, again, I was using a little bit tongue in cheek, but I don't care how you feel. I care what you focus on. Let's move away from trying to deal with emotional states. Um, and, you know, what I realized, you know, with adolescents, they're going to have a lot of different things that are impacting their emotions on a daily basis, just like adults. But I think perhaps even adolescents even more. And that we're in an environment where there's so much social comparison, which plays into emotional states. So with the kind of the mindfulness approach, when we, you know, the really belief is that we, we're not going to impact, we're not, we shouldn't change emotions at any given time. That emotions are going to come and go. And I think too much of our time in mental conditioning, we spent using emotional regulation where we spend time, how do we change these emotions? Well, I'm more about, well, how do we understand it? Okay, we're going to have anger. We're going to have, you know, um, happiness we're going to have sadness fear anxiety but then how do we how do we move past that and how do we then switch ourselves back on for example a tennis match in between points we may have 20 seconds maximum between points and if i'm if my athlete's spending 20 seconds you know controlling their anger well they haven't come up with a point plan they haven't refocused they haven't you know relaxed they've spent too much time dealing with one thing so really again working a lot on with adolescents being aware of their emotional states, but then working on issues, again, connected back to focus, I hate to kind of harp on about it, but being present-minded, accepting thoughts, accepting emotions, and really, you know, what do I need to do in this moment? Yeah, and so what you're saying, Duncan, is to not work to change those emotions in that 20-second period, but accept how they how they're feeling, but can they use strategies or techniques to move past that pretty quickly so they can stay in the present? Yeah, I, I think, you know, emotional regulation, you know, controlling our emotions uh, pre-performance is, is absolutely important. Do we want somebody going into a tournament, you know, really struggling with fear or, uh, you know, no, of course, of course we don't. So there's, there's time before performance to deal with some of those emotional things and, but I think sometimes in the present, when we're actually engaged in the sport and sports go so quickly, that we don't often have a lot of time to deal with that. So how are we using our time most effectively? Um, now, golf will be one where we may have a little more time, where you know, I, I want to make sure that you know, they're controlling their arousal, they're controlling different emotional states a little more, whereas tennis, it's going to be too quick. So sure. my, my time for tennis players may be a little bit different. Yeah. 
And then soccer is just continuous. So it's, you know, how do we continue to the next, the next piece of action? If we're getting too caught up in how I'm feeling about the last, you know, the last referee call, then I've missed the play that's going on. So it's how do we keep kind of playing forward as it were. Mm, like that playing forward. So Duncan, is there a signature technique that you use? Um, so I'm thinking about you know, something that, that makes you stand out or something that's unique to your work. I don't know if there's anything anybody does that's unique in our field. I think we just package it a little bit differently. I, I, you know, I don't think that there's necessarily something that I hold um, special. There's certainly ways that I deliver it. I mean, for example, I'll use the concept and it's, I don't even know who I got it from or I probably got it from somebody, but the notion of a time machine, I talk to a lot of athletes about. And that's probably one I probably stole from someone on your podcast. I don't know. But the idea, <laughs> the idea that, you know, where is, our, where is our mind and body at any given time? And all too easy as athletes, we go forward and backwards in time. And like a time machine, but we can't take our body there. But, but we do it. So, so we, we do it with our mind, but we can't take our body there. So it's really getting athletes, and, and they seem to actually like that, you know, analogy whereby if you can't take your body there all right don't let your mind go there so really talking again about a kind of present mind uh present moment focused and then um i, I do a lot on especially on and on, on, again tennis and golf uh, individual sports but i think it can apply to other um you know close skill sports um i do a lot on routines with certain athletes i, I know we did a presentation together before so you're familiar with it, how I, you know, I, I break down the routine into kind of four areas um, in terms of physical, technical, tactical, and mental, and making sure that in our pre, pre-performance routine that we're addressing something in our routine that addresses every one of those areas. Otherwise, I feel that we're not fully developing a pre-performance routine and we might be missing something. So I'll make sure that they have one of uh, something out of those four components in the pre-performance routine as well so that that's something how i teach the you know the routines to different uh sport athletes can you give us an example duncan of we could just take a golfer or tennis a tennis player what are some of the examples of a physical technical tactical and mental the mental aspects of the routine yeah absolutely um there's not a particular order. Some sports will align a little bit better. But for example, as soon as the point's finished, I want them to do a little physical check. How are they physically doing? Are they out of breath? If they're out of breath, let's go to the towel. Let's you know walk a little bit slowly. Let's make sure we use our full time. So doing a physical check. Similarly, that physical check could be if it's a tight moment, is it a pressure moment? How do we feel physically? Am I, are my shoulders a little bit tight? Uh, if I'm putting a golf ball, how do I feel physically? Same on the line for a basketball three throw. Is my heart racing among this? What's my body telling me? So that's just the physical check. And that can be pretty quick. If you feel good, great. If there's something wrong, then you need to perhaps address that. Maybe it's, okay, I need to step away from the line. Maybe I need to go to my towel. Maybe I just need to take an extra five seconds. Or I need to step away from the golf ball. Maybe I need to stretch. Do something physically. The, the technical element will be sport-specific. Um, so, for example, a tennis player, it may be something as simple as, am I, am I actually stood in the right position to serve or return this ball? Um, have I got the right grip strength? It, it's so easy. We, we think about those things that we almost do them intuitively, but under pressure, we know people grip a lot quicker, a, a lot harder, sorry, not quicker, a lot harder, and that's very detrimental for golf putting. So... You know, just technique-wise, am I aligned correctly with my putt? For a basketball free throw, you know, just that little reminder of, you know, how how does my shot look in terms of elbow up? Those kind of little technical points, it might be one or two. It's not to think about it during the process. I'm I'm not trying to get into modal learning, but it's more just a little technical reminder that if everything's good, we just move on. The, The strategy, the tactical piece... For tennis, it's obviously, you know, what, you know, where am I trying to serve return? Where's my target? What's previously happened on points? What am I trying to do on this point plan? For a golf shot, it's, you know, what's the shape of my shot? Where am I trying to land it? And then for a basketball three throw strategy is pretty, pretty simple. Um, but strategy does sometimes play a, play a role at the end of the game. You know, 
am I am I missing the back end of a a one on one because you know my team needs to get the rebound and you know needs to make it too. So there does have to be some sometimes some strategy in basketball free throw shooting. And then the last part is the mental. So I'll get an athlete. It may be um, a positive affirmation, something they'll say to themselves. It may be a focus cue. It may just be a relaxation breath, but something um, mental to just, um, again, facilitate, something that may, they'll feel facilitate performance. So although it sounds like a lot, if everything's good and everything's working, you can, you can go through those really quickly. Go to the towel. Am I in the right position? What's my point plan? Okay, you've got this. Where's my target? Go. I'm ready to serve. It, it, it can be done as quick as 10 seconds. So when I when I tell that to athletes, they're like four things. How the hell do I remember that? <laughs> but you know, we we take time. We and and usually they're doing some or most of these things is just helping them um, make sure that we kind of leave nothing unturned and and give them put them in the best position to perform. And that's all you can do. And that's the purpose of a pre-performance routine. Just give them the best opportunity to perform. And then it comes down to executing. Duncan, have you wrote about those four areas of a pre-performance routine anywhere? Because I'm just thinking, I know the listeners are going to be emailing me. <laughs> and they're going to say, tell us more. <laughs> uh, I haven't. I did a presentation at the national conference on it. Um, but no, I've never, I've never written on it. <laughs> I should, uh, I should. You should. You should in your spare time. <laughs> yeah. Well, excellent, Duncan. So let's kind of turn the attention a little bit to you. And we know, obviously, in our field that understanding why you do what you do is really important to keep you excited and, and passionate about your work. So just tell us a little bit about your why. I was, I was thinking about this today and I, you know, I, I think it's all too easy for us. There's a lot of people that are walking around in whatever walk of life they're in and, and they're not really striving to fulfill any kind of potential. And, and that's okay. That's how people want to go through life. But why I like working in sport and why I like working at IMD Academy is we've got a lot and the vast majority of the people here are really striving to be extraordinary and not ordinary. So they're, they're really striving to kind of fulfill the potential. So that's what drives me that I can help. I can try and help individuals on that path that, that they're trying to do something that other people are not doing. So I love that, whether it's, whether it's sport or whether it's, you know, business, whatever it might be, if people really kind of stretch themselves, really trying to find out what their potential is, I think that's fascinating because, you know, really, I think we've, we've really scratched the surface of what we're capable of humans. And I think the you know, the more and more people push boundaries, whether it's psychologically or physically, you know, I think that's fascinating. So it's all about people, you know, trying to help people fulfill the potential and people who are prepared to, you know, take a risk and, you know, and compete and, and stand up and say, you know, I'm going to compete today and I'm going to lay it all on the line. Uh, I think that's really admirable. So I, that's why I like working in sports space because there's people who are doing stuff that the vast majority of people either don't want to or they're not prepared to, the whatever the reason is that they're happy to settle and a lot of athletes are not like that. So that's why I really love working in that space. And perhaps that they also don't move forward towards their potential because they're stuck in their comfort zone or, you know, they're experiencing a lot of self doubt or negativity or kind of beliefs that they they can't do it. Absolutely. Um, So, all right, Duncan, one, one big question I have for you. So most of the people I have on, on the podcast, I ask a, ask them about a time that they failed. (laughs) And the reason I ask you this question is to kind of normalize failure. And so that we condition ourselves to realize that, you know, we're going to fail, but it's about how we respond to that failure and how we use that failure. So tell us a time didn't go so well for you and what you learned from it. I mean, I have numerous examples, but I give you one that really sticks out and it's more of a professional one. Um, When I left, uh, University of Tennessee I got a one-year teaching position at Ithaca College and um, really enjoyed my time up there but it was only a one-year teaching contract and uh, as you know in academia those positions become available again so I had to reapply for my own position uh, I had good evaluations from the students I felt like I'd done a good job I went through the the whole hiring process and I I wasn't given the job hmm. so I was pretty you know, uh, I was upset about that at the time. Um, and within 
a week I had a, I'd already applied, but within a week I'd heard from Barry University in Miami. So kind of coincidence and however things worked out, I, I got the job in Miami and, and moved to Miami. But one of the reasons I, I, the feedback was I didn't get the job because my research wasn't strong enough at Ithaca College, which um, I, I fully support that. It probably wasn't at the time. Um, I was really concentrating on my teaching and I hadn't done a lot of research. So they were right in their feedback. Um, but what that made me do was I'd never really been a keen researcher. But when I got to Barry, I was like, okay, if I'm really going to try and be good in this field, I need to make sure that um, I understand and I need to conduct and, and learn about the research process and do some research. And I think I really grew through that. So I, I was lucky enough and I've, you know, over the seven years of Barry managed to do quite a lot of research. I, I taught graduate level research for about five years that I was there and um, really felt like I got to know the research process pretty well. So from what came as a real kind of kick in the teeth to something that, that pushed me to be better and um, it was really the best thing that could have ever happened. I, you know, moved to Miami, had a great time at Barry University and met my wife and had a child so things work out for a reason but I you know I hopefully I, I learned from that because it was an area where I wasn't as strong and I needed to be to be in this field even if I was going to be a consultant I needed to know more about the research process and how to apply it and I think that's really from a weakness has turned into a relative strength of mine so yes I think that would be a, a key example I could give you. Yeah, and I suppose in that moment when you didn't get that position at Ithaca, it was not easy, right? When we when we don't accomplish our goals, uh, it can be really, really difficult. But what I heard is that you you took a lesson and then you used it actually to build your career. Yeah, I, I did. Um, and, and who knows, I could have had a, you know, my career could have, you know, grown from strength to strength to Ithaca and, and things happen for a reason. But I, I think they did what was right for them at the time. And I, and you know, on reflection, I agree with them. And I, I didn't in that moment, but I, you know, when you actually look at it from a third person, I agreed with them. So I, you know, I think it was a really learn, it was a great learning opportunity as a, as a young professional in the field to, you know, where, where are your areas of weakness? And, you know, I, when master students or students ask me, you know, how do I get into this field? Or how do I improve it? You know, what are your strengths and then where do you need to, where do you need to improve? Where are your weaknesses? Where are your blind spots? You know, and a lot of them don't want to know about research and they don't want to engage in research. And I get it. It's not easy, but I think it can really benefit you as a consultant if you want to be in the applied space. And if you want to be in, if you want to be in an academic setting, you certainly need to know the research process. And obviously we've done research together. So and I know you understand it. So I, I think for our field, it's really important for young consultants to at least get a handle on it and learn some of the processes. And whether it's research or another area of weakness, uh, whether it's public speaking or whether it's actually standing in front of people and, you know, delivering a topic like confidence. You know, everybody has their weakness or an area that they need to work on. So I, th I think you're absolutely right. You know, how do we turn our kind of challenges into strengths of ours? That's, that's super good. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, Duncan, was if, we, if you look at the top 10 traits of high performers, I know I sent that to you. Let, let's take a look at it a second. And if anybody's interested in looking at this list, they can download it on my website, drsindra.com. But which of those, Duncan, do you think is, is most important for high-level performance, just from your own experience? And it might be tough to pick one, <laughs> but what do you think? Well, I don't think it'll come as a surprise based on what I've been talking about. But I think, I think number 10, they dominate the moment, staying present moment focused. I think that really um, encapsulates a lot of what I've been talking about. So I think number 10, their ability to do that, in, especially in high-pressure situations. So number 10 for me. Yeah, number 10. So you're not thinking about the outcome or you're not experiencing fear or anxiety, like you were saying, where you're focused on the future or disappointment or anger or regret when you're focused on the past. Yeah. Yeah. Which one of those do you think you see that most athletes struggle with? I think number three, um, how to think and direct conscious thoughts. I work a lot with athletes and, you know, especially young athletes that 
you know, that kind of subconscious thinking, the thoughts that pop into the head and again, connects to kind of mindfulness, just they don't realize how in, impactful their thoughts are. Not only their thoughts, but also their directive thoughts and, and what, you know, and you self-talk with thinking patterns, how important that is. So for me, number three is something that a lot of athletes um, struggle with. Uh, yeah. And it's and it's not easy. It's not easy to help them. But yes, for me, it's number three. Yeah, and I think what you're saying and how you're explaining it, number three, the thinking patterns are directly related to your ability to stay in the moment, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you're interested in, in uh, checking out that list, you can head over to uh, again drcindra.com. You know, Duncan. One other question I had before we kind of go before we wrap up. I'm thinking about a presentation that you gave at ASP last year, the, the sports ecology conference, where you were talking about layering imagery. Uh-huh. Do you remember what you shared? And I'm just thinking about how um, that's one topic we really haven't discussed that I think the listeners would be interested in learning more about. Can you tell us about what layering imagery means to you? Yeah, absolutely. So often coaches and athletes use the term visualization. That's something they're familiar with. But really what we're talking about when we're using all of our senses, or well, multiple senses, is imagery. So we're trying to recreate an image, um, a picture in our mind of um, what we'd like things to look like, or it may be skill acquisition. So when I'm working with an athlete, obviously what we tend to do is, you know, can you, can you see yourself performing well? So we, we're using the visual sense. And then what, what I'll tend to do is um, once they get the, the visual sense down and through vision, we'll talk about kind of internal, external. So are they viewing themselves with their mind's eye or are they seeing themselves from a third person perspective? Um, athletes tend to have a tendency that most people see themselves through their own eyes, but it also is task dependent. So we'll, we'll do a little bit of that, just making sure that I understand how they're seeing the image. And then it'll be about, depending on the sport, what, what senses are most important to that sport? So for example, um, the kinesthetic we may, we want to use introduce feel. So, so it may be with a basketball three throw. What does the what does the ball feel like in your hands? Imagine the feel of a ball. Imagine your 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 feet on the hard wood surface. Now, how does that feel? So we'll introduce that. So we'll do a you know they'll they'll first of all visualize a free throw and then a couple, they'll do that a couple of times and then we'll introduce okay now introduce feel and with visualization. And once they have comfort in that level, then we'll introduce, okay, well, think about the sound. Think about the sound of the basketball hitting the, hitting the wood. Think about the squeak of your shoes. And then think about the, the sound of the basketball as it leaves your hand and, and, and kind of the swish as it goes through the net. So implementing sound. So what we're slowly doing is layering an image. Because I think when we tell an athlete, hey, you know, image this and use all five senses, it's, it's too difficult for them. And sometimes when you, when you add sound, they forget about the feel. So you have to take one step back. And, and then you, so you slowly add one sense on top of another. And then it may be, you know, um, obviously taste for some sports. Um, taste is really important for uh, swimming, for example, with the chlorine. Um, same with smell. So some of the senses, you know, taste and smell may not be as um, necessary for some, for some athletes or for some images. But for others, for, for example, golf, it could be the smell of, uh, you know, uh, fresh cut grass. You know, for other sports that may not be, you know, smell may not just be really important to the image. So the layering of the image just takes time in terms of how do we, how do we progress the image? And then once we've done that, it'll be slowly about um, implementing different elements. So um, kind of using the PEPLED model in terms of using, you know, getting our body physically involved, thinking about the environment, thinking about the timing of it, thinking about emotions involved. So all of a sudden we, we really recreating not just a simple image, but now we're looking at the basketball three throw and we're stood up, we're imagining it. We may even put a basketball in our hands if we want to. And then we may say, okay, you know, it's this time of the match, you're playing these rivals, this is the position. This is, you know, this is how you're feeling or think about how you're feeling and then think about the outcome of this. So then the, lay, then the image just gets more and more complicated. 
Uh, I think we sometimes jump in too quick with athletes and try and get them to do that image straight away. But imagery is a skill that can be taught. And some people have amazing imagery abilities and some people it just takes a little more time. So the layering of the image is just adding additional layers. And sometimes when you add something, you have to take something away until they get it. And then you add something back in. So the senses, and then we can add in different elements with regards to kind of pathway model. Oh, that's really good, Duncan. Some of my graduate students were in that session and they were raving about it. So I'm glad that you were able to describe it to us. Do you layer it, the, the senses in, the, in one meeting or are you kind of saying like layering them over time? And maybe you start this week with imagining as vividly as you can. And then, you know, the, the next week you might work to, you know, uh, include smell or how, tell us a little bit more how you do that. Yeah, I think it really comes down to, if I'm working individually with an athlete, it's a lot easier. Working with a team and doing imagery is very challenging. It can be done, but it's very challenging. Working with an individual, you can, you can progress relatively quickly, but it does come down to imagery ability. So some individuals have incredible imagery ability. Myself, for example, I'm extremely poor. So it would take a long time for someone to build a really complex image with me. But with some, and especially with experienced athletes, because they've, they've gone through certain scenarios and they, you know, they've really developed memory of different performance scenarios and how it feels and what it looks like. And so with experienced athletes, often that process can be quicker. But it, it, it does depend on the athlete. Some athletes I've had that, they just can't see the image and it, and it just takes a long, long time. Whereas I've had others that they can do really complex imagery and they've had very little practice in terms of formal practice. They've probably done it, you know, intuitively themselves. So it really just depends on the athlete, but it can progress very quickly. It could progress using multiple senses within one session. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let's wrap up the interview, Duncan. I got a few quick questions for you. Is there a book or a resource that you could recommend to the audience? And uh, why did you choose that one? I read a book this year that I really like called Legacy by James Kerr. Um, for those that haven't read it, it's all about the, the culture with inside the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team. I thought it was a fascinating book. Um, very easy to read, but very... Um, had some nice applied ideas. And I think most people would enjoy it whether they like rugby or not. It's about sport and team culture. So I really like that book. All right, excellent. Legacy. And is there a quote or a phrase that's important to you? And, and tell us how why it's important to you and, and how it might apply to us. Yeah, and I've got, I've got a, a plaque on my desk and it says, champions work when nobody's watching. So um, I'll tell you a very quick story. When I was doing my PhD, I was in the I was at the University of Tennessee about 7 p.m. on a Friday night, as most PhD students are. And I go upstairs, and my advisor was Dr. Craig Risberg, and he was professor emeritus and had published 100 research papers and has done everything you could want to do. Past president of our association, so he has nothing to prove. He's close to retirement, and I go past his office. All the other offices are closed. I go past his office and the lights on and he sat there. I say, Doc, what are you doing here? And that was his quote. He said, champions work when nobody's watching. And I thought, if he's doing it at his age and what he's accomplished, I can do it. So that's something that really lives by me. And I, I love that quote. And uh, yeah, it's something that I, I try and do no matter who's watching you, the, the best, you know, get the work done. Nice. So quote by Craig Risberg. Love it. Yes. And what final advice do you have for those high performers who are listening, Duncan? Motivation, I think is a lie. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> I, I, motivation comes and goes. Um, I, I talked to a group this year and I really said the big brother of motivation is discipline. That on a, on a daily basis, our motivation can be up, it can be down. But what really matters to high performance is discipline. So when we're not feeling our best and we're not, you know, wanting to do something, it's the discipline to do the small things, whether it's diet, whether it's getting the right recovery, whether it's, you know, giving 100% in physical conditioning or mental conditioning or just out on the training field. It's having the discipline to do it even when you don't feel like it. So um, discipline, big brother motivation. 
I love it. Man, Duncan, you brought it today to this podcast. <laughs> uh, there are so many things that I enjoyed hearing you just talk about. It. I loved your stories. I'm going to pick out three things that stood out to me. I liked what you said in terms of your journey just to see that you know, the most important topic um, is focus and helping your athletes switch that focus and deal with the external and internal distractions that you talked about. And the key concept there that I'm taking is the one minute focus. I thought that was super tangible and sticky. I also appreciated that you talked about that it doesn't matter how you feel and you can feel great and play terrible. And so to focus less on how you feel, that confidence is not a a feeling state, but a belief system. Super good. And it's really hard to pick another. <laughs> but I'd say that you, I liked your discussion about the time machine. I don't think anybody talked about that on the podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> one. But, you know, why, why move your, why allow your, your mind to go in the past or the future when your body can't? So uh, I just want to commend you for bringing it, <laughs> bringing it here and just sharing so much value with the listeners. And I know that people are going to reach out to us and say, man, I loved what Duncan said about this or that, or they're going to be retweeting it or posting it. So tell us how the listeners can reach out to you if they're interested. I'm relatively active on Twitter, so they can um, reach out, contact me on Twitter, which is at sport psych dunk, which is S P O R T P S Y C H D U N C. Or if they do want to email me, it's pretty simple. It's duncan.simpson at img.com. Excellent. Excellent. Any other final thoughts, Duncan? No, I just want to commend you on the podcast, Sindra. It's been um, great for me to listen to other experts in the field. I've used it as a resource to, to listen to really the best. So I appreciate you putting in the hard work and you know spreading the, kind of the word out to athletes, coaches, and other um professionals I feel so great job on the podcast I love listening hey I super appreciate that and just want to thank you again for being an active listener (laughs) Um, and and tuning in for those people who uh, really enjoyed this podcast we'd encourage you to head over to Twitter and you can tag Duncan Sports Psych Dunk and then myself mentally underscore strong we'd love to hear what you thought about this what stood out to you what was important the more people you can share this interview with the better because it just means that more people are impacted about the the power of of sport and performance psychology. So Duncan, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us from sunny Florida today. Thanks ever so much, Sandra. Thank you for listening to High Performance Mindset. If you like today's podcast, make a comment, share it with a friend, and join the conversation on Twitter at Mentally Underscore Strong. For more inspiration and to receive Sindra's free weekly videos, check out DrSindra.com.